over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We are in the book of Ezra. Ezra is a book by a priest and a scribe. Although a scribe was a writer, the scribal writing, a scribe was also a lawyer. And a lawyer really in the sense of a one who knew the law. So don't just think of them as a person with great penmanship, uh, like a Masoret who copied the Bible. So when we talk about a priest and a scribe, he was, let's think of it in our terms, let's say he was an ordained priest, but he also got a law degree. Not the best comparison, but just to give you an idea how to put some hooks on it. So it was a more, uh, a more educated role that he went through to be a scribe. Now, the book of Ezra is very short, but it covers 22 years, and I'll show a chart and a video next week that'll explain a lot of this, but I wanted to hold off on that. So we're going to 22 years, a 60-year gap, and then one year in these 10 chapters. So from, from chapter 1 to 7, verse 1, is 22 years, a 60-year gap, and then one year. Now, as we talk through Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and we're going to toss around a lot of names like Haggai and Zerubbabel and other people. It is a complicated history. Let me tell you right on the set. It's complicated to keep together. That's why I'm going to show you this video next week. Are you all familiar with the Bible Project? If you're not familiar, uh, you can even do it now. It won't offend me. Go on your phone, pull it up, and send it to yourself in an email. Uh, Warren Pettit was kind enough to remind me. They've completed every book of the Bible. When I first was exposed to them. They had like five books. They have every book of the Bible. And I forget, what is it called when you're writing on a marker board and then talking? There's a term for that. Anybody know? Is it whiteboarding? Is that what it's called? Um, and, and so the whole thing is whiteboarded. And what they do in these videos is amazing from a theological and a visual representation. And they're about seven or eight minutes long, and we'll show the one next week on Ezra, because what he can, what, what they do with these three prophets, I can't do better verbally, but you can see it and the way they draw it. We'll talk a little bit about what they're accomplishing. And the guys theologically are very sound. So the Bible Project, you, you homeschoolers, you got kids at home, you need to dial in to the Bible Project and see what they've got. It's all free. I love their approach. You can download it, put it on a thumb drive. They just ask that you don't edit it and that you give them credit. So that's a pretty simple arrangement. So 22 years, six-year gap, one year in this 10-chapter book that we're going to look at today. There are two primary leaders, Zerubbabel and Ezra. Zerubbabel's the first 22 years, six-year gap, one year Ezra is really in charge, if you will. So that's, it's a little bit complicated. Now, anecdotally, any of you Star Wars fans, don't be embarrassed. Do you know the order of the Star Wars? Could you explain to me the order of the Star Wars? If you could explain that, this is easier. 
Are you a DC Marvel person? Proudly raise your hand. Do you know the order of the 95 different iterations of the DC Marvel Universe? This is a lot easier than that. But when you're reading the Bible with words on print on a piece of paper, sometimes it's hard to sew this together. And so that's what we'll try to do in the weeks ahead. And I, you've heard me mention many times the um, uh, talk through the Bible, how helpful that is. Zerubbabel, again, the first return. There's three returns, and we'll see it in the video. Zerubbabel is the first return. Then we have this minor section that Ezra is actually over. Um, there's a guy named Cyrus. He's a Persian king. And if you want to open your Bible to Ezra chapter 1, you can see this. We'll read it in just a moment. And he comes into power, and there are actually a span of Persian kings. The Bible doesn't record all of them, but we're going to eventually end up with a Persian king who is going to be named Darius I. But Cyrus comes along, and uh, God uses this guy, and he makes it he makes, he makes it available for Israel to go home. They've been in exile for 70 years. If we were to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we'd see how the temple, because of their sin, was in disarray and destroyed. They're taken away in exile. 70 years pass, and Cyrus comes along, and he allows them to go back. Let's look at the next one, please. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And I know everyone can read that. It's really easy to read. Um, but what's important about some of these archaeological finds, you'll hear people say, see, they approve the Bible. Well, I'm a little bit tight when it comes to this. They know the Bible proves archaeology. I look at it differently. But it, nevertheless, uh, one of the parts of this inscription reads, uh, so he says, may all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities daily ask Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. Paraphrase Michael Easy Virgin, hey, I'm a nice guy. I'm letting you go home. Will you pray to your gods, for my gods, to let me live a long time? I'm a nice guy. I'm not like the people that brought you into captivity. And so we have this famous Cyrus Cylinder, and he's, he's basically a good kind of king. Now, in your Bible, if you have cross-references, which unless you're a Bible geek like some of us, you probably don't look at, but there are a number that are attached to uh, Ezra chapter 1-1. Let me just show you one that's so often taken out of context, but it pertains to this. It's in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, we have it on the thing, read with me. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Now let's go to Ezra chapter 1 and let's read these together as well. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in, also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you and all his people, may his God be with him, let us go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, think about this. This is a Persian king who's making this proclamation. He's got a multiple set of gods on his mantle, if you will. He's worshiping Nebo and Baal and other, Baal, uh, other gods, but he recognizes it'd be no problem if you can add a few more gods to your mantle. Why not put Yahweh up there too? What's the problem? But God's using him. And there's a lesson right away when I read these first three verses is that God is sovereign in human history. God keeps his promises. We need to be reminded of this because um, some of us have been Christians long enough where the, the word God's promises is a cliche. God keeps his promise. Ah, I've heard it. Maybe you grew up where your grandmother had a book, uh, God, something, uh, Gilded Promises or Gold Promises. It was a book on, a dusty book on an end table, and it was about God's promises. You never looked at it. And it's sort of cliche to us who've been around the block with the Bible a little bit. His promise is his word. Um, I've been listening to a series of lectures on Luther, and this particular professor that has a funny way of talking about God's word and the way Luther viewed it, that if you didn't believe the word, you were calling God a liar. Interesting twist. If you say, I trust, I believe in these promises, what you're saying is, I trust God at his word. If I don't believe, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, I'm calling God a liar, which is another, you know, it gives you some color behind Luther and how he was trying to reform things. All that said, um, we need to be careful with passages, how we take them out of context sometimes. But the greater principles of salvation and forgiveness of sanctification of discipleship, of making disciples of all nations, of him building his church, these are, these are promises that, that God is sovereign over, even though we're fallen people in a fallen context. He's sovereign in the affairs of human history. And you and I need to be reminded that when we get discouraged or defeated or wonder or worry or wring our hands about who's going to be the next president or the next governor or the next whatever, God is not pacing heaven's floor, wringing his hand, going, no stupid humans. He's looking through his son going, I've paid for it, and I love them, and I care about them. And yeah, I'll discipline them from time to time. But he made provision. Well, what I want to do with this rest of this message is just give you seven big observations. And you would see these if you read the book on your own, just to walk you through. Um, some will spend more time on than others. But the first one is the temple was destroyed because of Israel's sin. We talked about this at length last week. Don't forget, they've been in exile 70 years because of their sinfulness. This wasn't because they were invaded by marauding forces and Yahweh was asleep at the wheel and he let Israel be overturned and the temple destroyed. It was because of the, all the kings and the fraction of the divided kingdom and all the sin, a host of issues. And so these inner fightings with the Jews, the alliances with other peoples, and God says, I've had enough. And so they go into Babylonian captivity for seven, 70 years. The second one, rebuilding and restoration had to be done according to God's law. This wasn't simply, hey, let's go back and, you know, some of you might like these shows um, where they go in and they find a junker house 
gains or the property buzz, whatever. And they find this junky house and they go in and they gut it and they fix it. They go, I wish they do that to my house. You know, what they don't show you is it took nine years behind the scenes and they fought about it and they almost killed each other, but, Oh, it looks great. You know, um, I saw a meme the other day about homeowners projects and how a husband and wife, when they do things, how they never get finished. It was pretty good. If you watch it on TV, it gets finished in 45 minutes or whatever, not in real life. But nevertheless, uh, this wasn't something that you were just going to, okay, we need able bodies to move chairs and tables. And so the first three chapters of Ezra detail minutia about how this had to be done. Now, Think about this, seven years captivity. How old were these people? And we're going to see that later in the book of Ezra. If they did not teach their children these laws during captivity, they're lost. If they didn't teach God, if, if the priests who were part of the temple complex, who were now in captivity, did not teach their sons who were born in the order of Aaron and Levi and the Levitical priests. If they didn't teach them this, that information was lost. I would dare say most of us in this room could not give a thumbnail of the Bill of Rights or the Constitution or the three branches of government. I guarantee you they couldn't do it in the public school in fifth grade. If you ask them what the three branches of government are, in the public school where your kid may go, I'd be shocked if they could name them. The Jew understood their heritage and legacy, and the priest, especially the Levitical order, had to hand down this information because they believed God's promises. Even though they were sinful, there were some faithful in the remnant. Ergo, that's why they're called the remnant. And so they're going to come back to Israel to rebuild. And this, think about oral tradition. Some of it may have been in writing, but most of it was oral tradition that they're passing to their children. Now, when we go back, this is what the temple looked like. And this all comes back from Moses, who was the one who gave them this law. Third, there's a fascinating mixture of joy and weeping at the end of Ezra 3. We don't have a slide for this, but let me just read you a piece of this. So the, the restoration project begins, and this is the priest stood in their apparel, trumpets to Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of King of David of Israel. They sang, praising, giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his chesed, his loving kindness is forever upon Israel. All the people shouted with a great shout. They praised the Lord because the foundation of the house had been laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men, who had seen the temple, the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation was laid before their eyes, while many others shouted with joy. So the people could not distinguish the sound of joy from the sound of weeping. I love it. I love it. I think this one reason Jason and I are kind of, you know, connected. I don't I don't raise my hands and and smile when I sing. I cry. Always have. I don't know why. I see people raising their hands and smiling and running around dancing. Good for you. Good for you. When I worship, it gets me. And I think maybe it's my Catholic upbringing. I think it was the nuns, you know, scared you know what out of me, you know. I grew up in a whole Catholic system, and maybe you did too. Maybe you had a better experience than I did. They terrified me. 
If you don't do this, you're going to go to purgatory and probably hell, boy. I mean, having none tell you that with a ruler, that'll shake your senses, you know. And I grew up with the fear of God, maybe in a good way. But because of that background, I'm not trying to give you my story in some maudlin detail, but when I cry, it's like, why me? Why can I say these words? I am no better than anybody else. I'm a wicked, sin, old sinner man. And maybe as the older I get, I mean, Cindy elbows me all the time. I mean, I'm just maudlin. The older I get, the faster the tears come. And part of the time I'm kind of busy is because if I sit on worship, I'll, I'll be red-faced when I get up here. I'll just be a, a mess. Um, I weep when I worship. And think of those old men that had some semblance of what that temple complex was. Think of it all in disrepair, and they're putting some foundation stones together. The framing's up on the house, and you go by, and you put on social media, look, we have a framed house, and the old men wept. Wow, it's happening. 70 years of desolation, it's happening. We're coming back home. The worship center is being rebuilt. I call it tears of worship. Four. Politics, money, fear, and opposition always get in the way. I don't care what the project is. I don't care if you're starting a church, a Bible study, a new business, planning a family, your finances, moving, building a house. This is a broken world, men and women. We're fallen people in a fallen context. It's nothing new. And Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to see it again and again. Politics, money, fear, and opposition always get in the way. My question is, why are you surprised? And this is where Wayne has taught me so much about faith. If you spent any time with Wayne, he's got this little laugh he does. <laughs> and he wire brushes me and he kind of laughs. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Michael. Don't worry about it, Michael. And you know what that teaches me? Have faith. Problems happen. Problems happen. We'll get through it. It'll work out. My life reminds me, he's been faithful to this day. He's been faithful in your life to this day. Politics, money, fear, opposition. All, what married couple did not get married and one point in your marriage wake up, well, what in the world have we done? Were we insane? Yeah. Were we drunk with love and lust? Yeah. You know the old bad joke about marriages like a phone call at midnight? You get a ring and you wake up? That'd take a while for some of you. And reality hits in. We spent a year of our first marriage sleeping back to back with my poor dear bride sobbing as she went to sleep. What have I done marrying this idiot? This is not what I thought it was going to be. And any couple in this room, if you're half on, well, there's some exceptions to everything. Most of us, what are we doing? Politics, money, fear, and opposition always get in the way because we're sinful people and the, the world is broken. You've heard me say it a thousand times. This life at best is a clean bus station. Don't try to make earth heaven. Don't try to make this place your home. You're a temporary resident. You're a sojourner. You're, you're traveling through. You're a pilgrim. 
you're going to a new undiscovered country, as Shakespeare called it. No matter what you're building, those things are going to be at play. Five, the hand of the Lord. Fascinating phrase in Ezra and Nehemiah. Didn't see it in any commentary I ever read. Just saw it with basic old Bible study methodology skills. Looking for repetition, chasing down words that recur again and again and again. And in some fashion or form, this phrase, the hand of the Lord accomplishes the work. You're going to see it several times in Ezekiel and three times in the book of Nehemiah. And when it's used, they're attributing the success to God's hand. Isn't that a great picture? God's hand brought it. It wasn't that we had the resources and the money and we were smarter than. We built a better house. We built a better business. If you know Christian men and women in business, it's interesting how they get to points in their business, go, how did we ever get here? And they go, you know, God's hand was kind to us. If you raise children and your children turn out, what? God's hand was kind to us. You know, you realize this. Some years ago, I think I've told you all, and I encourage you to have a real Bible and write in it and take notes in it and underline and circle and, you know, connect the dots of whatever you need to do to help you. Uh, I love the technology, but there's something about the kinesthetics and the aesthetic that I think we're losing when it's all technology. But um, I, I wrote sometime in the top of my Bible on this page, MJE, my initials, is the hand of a Lord upon you? Now I'm going to be a little nasty two times today. Can I ask you the question? Is the hand of the Lord upon you? And you and I have to evaluate that. You have to look at what you're doing, parenting in, in, in the workplace, in your retirement, in your teaching, in your environment. You have to look at what you're doing and ask the question, is God using me? When God stops using you, you start dying. And the older you get, the less runway you have. And this is more and more important for us. Now, perhaps the, the most well-known verse in the Bible is Ezra 7, verse 10. Let's read together. Ezra 7, verse 10. Read with me. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, this is a really important verse, and it's really taken out of context. Let's talk a little bit about some of the terms. Heart, mind, practice, study, teach, all these words mean different things today than they do in the Old Testament. Let's begin with the word heart. For the Old Testament Hebrew, uh, the, the Greek viewed the center of humanity as the cardia. The cardia. The Hebrew viewed the center of humanity roughly as nephesh or the soul. And it was more the neck, the throat, the breath of God when he breathed life into Adam and he became a living being made in the image of God. So the Hebrew had more of, you know, and this is why when with the phrase risk your neck, it's the most vulnerable part. This is life, right? Your carotid arteries are cut, you're going to bleed out. So even the ancients knew this. So just a different way that the Hebrew versus the Greek looked at the body. Um, the heart language today concerns me so much because when I read it and, and, and hear it, sometimes it's not what the Bible says about the heart. The heart for the Hebrew was more of a mind, will, and conscience. It wasn't the cardia of the Greek. In fact, if you're a BSF or a precept or whatever, you will know from Psalm 119, this is one of the key recurring themes about the heart and teaching and studying. And it's not the heart transformation you're going to hear a lot of people 
talk about today. Um, we can. I'm not trying to pick on churches or music labels or personalities. I'm trying to get your nose in the book. What do these terms mean? Study is the term that basically means, um, any, any of you have a grandma that said, I'm going to learn you, boy. I'm going to learn you a lesson. Uh, the Hebrew has a, you know, we have past, present, future. We have, well, they have a, a subset of things I won't bore you with, but it, it's the idea of causing something to happen. And so when your grandma said, I'm going to learn you, boy, what that really meant, I'm going to cause you to learn, or to say it politically correct, let me teach you something. It might be with a switch. I'm going to learn you, boy. You're causing them to learn. And that was the Hebrew idea of studying. And the Hebrew idea wasn't simply to study, to stand up in front of a group of people and teach. The great Shema, there's 12 primary Hebrew words that hold this all together. One of them actually means an ox goad. What a great picture. I'm going to learn you, ox. Mm. You know what a cattle prod does, right? It gets the cow's attention. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ox goad you to get your attention. And there's times uh, that we need to learn that way. Hosea 10, 11, Ephraim was taught like a heifer with an ox goad. So these words sometimes a little bit, um, a little bit lost. But the idea of knowing God's word, of being a student of God's word, of being in God's word, and I will, I will wear, you will get sick of me encouraging you, get your nose in the book every day. Get your nose in the prayer book every day. There's no substitute. You must learn to feed yourself. You must learn to study on your own. You, I mean, that's why groups are important. That's why small groups are helpful. That's why Bible studies are That's why Sunday school is helpful, because we all need help. Very few of us are motivated enough to do it on our own. Some are. But the joy of sharing it with others takes it exponentially to a different level, and you really are caused, you're caused to learn. Finally, uh, the seventh one, because you got to have seven, right? We need to see sin as God sees sin. And I'm going to read you a long section. You want to turn your Bible, it's Ezra chapter 9. And people don't like this part of Ezra. And let's go back to the big picture. We are now in that one-year time frame where Ezra, the temple complex has been somewhat restored, and now the priest is stepping in, Okay. And this is what we read. Now, when these things had been accomplished, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. So the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. The hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe. I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me. And I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation. Even with my garment and robe torn, I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God. 
for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. You know, we say we're up to our neck in water, we're up to our neck in trouble. It's, it's over our heads, it's reached to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment of grace, what a great line. But now, for a brief moment of grace, has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg, a foothold, a little tiny peg in his holy place. That our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness, most important word in your Old Testament, hesed, loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving to raise the house of our God, to restore its ruins and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. You need to see your sin as God sees your sin. Now, if we go back, and just because I'm listening to this, you get to, you know, I get to unload all my pearls on you. Uh, the reformers were into self-flagellation. The monks were into self-flagellation. They would beat themselves. They had these things that they would cut their backs and put on their legs and cut their legs and beat themselves and whip themselves because when they had simple thoughts, they would, you know, hate themselves. You don't need self-flagellation. You don't need self-hatred. You don't need to live in a repressed, uh, unbearable load of guilt and shame because of the sin of your former life, of your, of your current life. That doesn't help anything. Guilt and shame are good in when they lead you to repentance. Guilt and shame, from God's perspective to me, are good because it reminds me, don't go there again. You don't want to feel that way again. You don't want to live under that guilt and shame again. You don't focus on not sinning. You focus on Christ, and this is the big transformation. Um, I suggest we should hate our sin. If you coddle your sin, if you caress your sin, if you hide your sin, if you love your sin, what you're telling God is, I like this more than your way. And your sins and my sins are a temporary, insatiable substitute for the only thing he can satiate. Your sins and mine are a temporary, satiable way to meet some need that he provides an, the only satiable way. But we've twisted it, and we coddle it, we love this stuff, we play with it. I don't want to put you under the burden of penance and contrition and all this. This was what the church fathers all fought about. Catholics, reformers, they all disagreed on the amount of contrition. Do you hate your sin? Do you hate yourself? Do you go to penance? Do you say a rosary? How many rosaries do you have to say? How do you know? Do you go to someone? Do you go to a priest or to a friend? Do you confess your sins? This is huge stuff. And you know, it's still stuff today. You go to five Catholic churches, five Lutheran churches, five Protestant churches, you're going to hear a different spin on this. 1 John 1, 9 is a real good landing place. You confess your sins. How many of you know it? If you confess your sins, he is faithful 
See, you knew it without even looking at the screen. You acknowledge your sin and you run to him. To understand this glorious forgiveness you and I have, it's precious. And I got to see Ezra. I mean, think of the guy tearing his robes, pulling some of his hair and beard out, sitting in the dirt, kneeling, doesn't want to look up to heaven, praying out to God. He's looking pretty shabby. He gave us a peg because of your grace. He gives us a moment of grace. You and I live in an age of grace. We live in a state of grace if we understand it. The one unique God-made miracle, the one unique God-man born to die that we might live, paid it all. And that's where you cling to deal with your sin. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.